Welcome to Preflections, a series of conversations brought to you by Pantopicon, in which we reflect upon present-day society and peer through its cracks in anticipation of possible worlds to come. A few days ago, I had the pleasure to have a conversation with Tom Wambeke, Chief Learning Innovation at the International Training Center of the International Labour Organization in Turin, Italy. Throughout the years, I've come to know and respect Tom for a variety of reasons, among which his broad areas of interest and his free-spirited, adventurous and passionate approach to tackling complex challenges. During our chat, we talked about learning and teaching, about the value of listening and the power of taking a step back versus the pitfalls of solutionism, determinism and otherisms. And of course, we talked Belgian beer. Enjoy. Tom, welcome to the podcast. Hi, Nick. Happy to be here. <laughs> it's a pleasure and an honor to have you here. Um, I guess we can make an unusual promise to the to the listeners today, which is that we'll we'll talk about learning, and we'll talk about Belgian beer, right? Yeah, we can also talk about festivals, foresight, whatever you want, Nick. <laughs> Okay, so let's let's start off with the learning bit. Um, right now, you're Chief of Learning Innovation at the International Training Center of the International Labour Organization in Turin, Italy. But your connection to education and learning as well as innovation goes way back, doesn't it? Um, could you tell us a little bit more about the trajectory that led you here and what it is that drives your passion in this area? Yeah, it's a kind of... Uh um, unexpected kind of journey. I didn't never um, thought that I would end up into a, a learning function. Although actually, when I was uh, thinking about what I'm going to study, uh, I said like um, I wanted to study something um, social. So I said like I would like to study psychology or educational sciences, and that's where I ended up in in Leuven and studied ped pedagogy for uh, about five years. But immediately jumped into philosophy, like I got my major in uh, philosophy within uh, educational uh, sciences. And after that, uh, yeah, worked as an assistant at the University of uh, Leuven, basically teaching philosophy to uh, first year students at the university, uh, always with, let's say, the philosophy of uh, learning, the philosophy of pedagogy, philosophy also of uh, uh, psychology. But of course, if you want to remain at the university, you need to dive into deep research. And uh, being like 23 years old was uh, not yet, I didn't have like really an idea on what I wanted to research. I had a lot of different uh, interests. And uh, in your assistant <coughs> position, you can stay only a few um, years at the university. And I said, no, I need to dive into something different. And then by accident, I got into uh, e-learning and technology enhanced learning, did a lot of consultancy type of uh, assignments and uh, always was like, okay, what do you want to do in life? Uh, I knew what I liked. I mean, I like music. I did festivals and, and stuff. And uh, I actually, during that time when I was working at university, I also did a master in cultural management uh, at the same time at the University of Antwerp. I said like, look, I always want to organize festival or something because that's such a great experience but not just a festival in, in in the normal sense like a little bit of a kind of an interdisciplinary festival and we're talking about 20 25 years uh, ago and when i really had the hinge there was when um, 
we organized in, in Rooselare, which is in the far west in the Flanders, the opposite to where you are in, in Limburg, uh, Nick. We organized a kind of an interdisciplinary festival, which was called the Sleep Out. It was a huge industrial factory where we have put about of uh, 300, 400 beds and where we asked all artists, theater makers, fashion papers to do something around the old sleep out concept, sleep in concept of John Lennon and Yoko Ono and to do something quite intimate in a very rough industrial kind of setting. And that kind of experience said like, look, I would like to dive deeper into organizing these kind of events. And then uh, at that moment, when I was thinking very deeply about it, I got invited to participate in, a, in an exam for the UN, for the United Nations. And uh, I did that uh, on the go, um, won that exam, and then they invited me to go into Turin. Actually, originally I thought I have to go to Geneva now to work for the International Labour uh, Organization, which is the oldest specialized agency of the uh, UN. And I ended up in Turin in a training center, which basically focuses on training and learning for people worldwide. We have about 15,000 people on a yearly base that come there to learn about all potential topics. Uh, can go on uh, topics that are directly related to labor rights, human rights, project cycle management, uh, sustainable development, a wide range of expertise kind of topics. And uh, when I arrived there, I said, I'll try it for one year. And now uh, forward, uh, it's 12 years later. And that's where... And basically now, no festivals, but uh, learning. Wow, seems like a, like a party nevertheless. Um, you mentioned that you, um, that you immediately um, dove deeper into, into philosophy when you were, were studying. What was it that you were looking for uh, in, in, in philosophy to, to complement actually the pedagogical side of, of, of your studies? <clears throat> I don't know. I think the pedagogical side was a kind of a natural, intuitive side of my my youth, of my past. I was lots engaged in in youth movements. I was engaged at the, at uh, in my village. I organized uh, a lot of stuff. And then naturally, when you're 18 years, you want to make the world a better place. And that was, let's say, the only study that directly connected uh, with me. But when I arrived at the university, I must say I was a little bit disappointed in the sense that okay, you get all these introductory uh, subjects from uh, statistics to psychology towards the thing. And then I said, like, look, I want to have something uh, deeper. The philosophical angle allowed me to learn to think. Uh, and this kind of meta level has been always following me in the rest of my life. And, and I would say that uh, having the chance to, to, to study philosophy was much more meaningful for me than going in towards the more applied sciences like uh, psychology or, or educational sciences. And uh, of course, this was a practical way for me to engage in a, an academical study. But uh, this was for me a little bit asking the the five whys, you know, why are you doing that? And then like my daughter asked then why and why and why and why. And that helped me a lot at that stage of my life to dive a little bit deeper in uh, what you want is also the perfect uh, age to ask you some existential questions, but still apply to a specific field. It was not at the abstract metaphysical level uh, very deep, but I don't know. It gives you a little bit more of um, yeah reflective capacity at a time of that you really needed. Yeah, it's definitely a, a larger backdrop uh, on which to project uh, 
everything else you learn, I guess, a more systemic uh, view on things as well. At least that's what we notice with our philosopher colleagues at the at the studio as well. Um, coming back to learning, uh, I don't know about you, but whenever the term learning pops up in a discussion these days, increasingly I have the impression that many people have gradually come to see it more narrowly as, as synonymous to, to education. While obviously it's it's much broader than that. Um, also in these COVID-19 days, we hear a lot of people, especially ministers and government officials, I must say, perhaps even more than, than teachers, um, worry about, as they put it, children falling behind in learning because the schools are closed, uh, as, if, uh, as if they don't learn beyond the schools, right? So... At the same time, we see many parents also rejoice as they see their, their children acquire new skills or new interests or be more engaged in learning and do it with a smile rather than uh, than drudgery on their face. Um, without aiming for a, a battle of definitions, which would definitely kill this conversation, how do you look at this, um, also taking into account your experiences at the center, this... this um, these two viewpoints of, of the learning versus the teaching. I mean, they meet somewhere in the middle, but it seems like it's a skewed uh, relationship at the moment. Yeah, it's it's a tricky one because like also, if I go back to what I learned throughout my academical studies was in a formal educational setting and all the uh, academic topics that actually had to absorb were very formal from, you know, the, the didactics towards the educational psychology, towards the educational philosophy with a very fixed curriculum, with a very linear view. You start with uh, the first thing and then you end up with the rest. And it was uh, something that I said, like, look, um, I mean, it's educative because you need to have some frameworks, you need to have some standards. But sure. now in the job that I'm right now and the problems that I have to solve, actually, I put my formal educational head completely at the back because it really narrowed my thinking at uh, at a certain point you know you have to imagine i'm working in a, in a center where i get let's say senior level government officials uh, trade union specialists employer organizations they come to me with complexities in their organization and said like look i would like to train about four million people in this kind of subject for a specific country uh, on on that and uh, Of course, if I would put my formal educational head, I said, okay, let's dive into a process here. You know, we're going to analyze, we're going to see what are your needs, we're going to formulate some learning objectives, and then we go across the whole linear circle of what we would call an instructional path. And, you know, and teachers at any level, uh, professors, I think they will recognize that in one way. But what I see that you get not into a conversation anymore and you go... You know, you don't, how would I uh, express it? You, you, you're, you're disconnecting in a way from a natural learning process. Because what I see in a natural learning process is that a lot of things are unplanned. Uh, a lot of things happen because of uh, what I would call serendipity. And if you look at your own lives, the, the, the moments that I learn most are the, the unplanned, uh, actually, uh, things. Uh, when you look at a lot of actually educational models, they would say like, look, you would learn a majority in the more informal experiential settings than in the formal planned, you know, hours that you have to go to school or that you have to go and to do this. So 
in a way, it's about of a tricky question because if this informal, if this experiential learning, being with your parents, going for a walk uh, in the nature, all these kind of things, if that is where we really have a kind of an optimal learning curve, um, how can we stimulate that without having to formalize it again in a kind of an old structure? I'm not going to make it like a pledge for all the alternative experiential models that are here from uh, Steiner, Montessori mm -hmm. and all the things. It's just some natural reflections that I make as an adult uh, learner here. And that is where what triggers me. Specifically in, in, in adult learning, I'm not going to think anymore in the old fixed essentialist curriculums. I'm going to think more in what kind of complex challenges and problems do my fellow people actually face and how can we have a meaningful conversation about that that would lead to potential scenarios to address the complexity in the professional challenges that they're facing. So um, it's a little bit of a long reflection that I'm making here, but I think a lot of essential elements, I mean, I just gave you one uh, element here, the serendipity, but I could actually, we could dive into the conversation. There are a lot of other elements that I would like to see more into, um, let's say, the normal uh, educational uh, system. Uh, to, go, to get it back to uh, philosophy, it would be about curiosity. You know, that would be uh, just one yeah. uh, ingredient. But there are a lot of other different elements that I would like to add. Yeah, definitely. Um it, 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 it makes me reflect also on something that I've heard quite a lot in the past, uh, especially in the past uh, weeks. Um, now that many parents are at, at home watching their children being engaged in one form of distance learning or, or another, and they, what you hear from a lot of them is that they say, we, we see the absolute best and the absolute worst of education right now. And we weren't witness to that uh, before. Um, but I think besides the quality of education, it, it also shows how we've, as a society, have almost outsourced learning um, to what one could call, um, without it being a pejorative term, um, the educational industry or kind of like a manufacturing line approach to, uh, to learning. Um, whereas now, perhaps, as you mentioned, the kind of, uh, the complex world people find themselves in uh, and that they need to face and they need to develop skills in order to deal with that requires something else. Um, not just in terms of the content of learning, but perhaps also in the process of learning. Do you think that this, um, perhaps this moment now in time um, also raises the awareness that eventually might translate into a new model of education, if we can call it like that, perhaps better fit to 21st century needs? Um, I wish. <laughs> uh, no, but what I've seen specifically in the whole COVID-19, uh, let's say chaos uh, out there, that there was a little bit of, um, how would I call it, a kind of an innovation panic type of uh, reaction. And I'm not going to I mean, I'm an e-learning specialist myself, so I should be very happy that the whole mon the whole world was forced uh, to go online because specifically in an old educational context, they are already resisting for more than 30 years, you know, because mm -hmm. it's like online Absolutely. was the big, big evil that was the, 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 the devil. And you, you cannot replace it because what's happening needs to be the face-to-face -face kind of context. And it's exactly because of that old conservative approach that people are not ready to make, let's say, immediately the transition. 
or they are forced into a transition that accelerated much faster than what their mindset capacity is really. Because what we have seen in the last uh, weeks, I mean, people had to transform in less than a few weeks completely towards an online model. And what do we see? They make exactly the same mistakes as they would do with the old uh, model. I mean, talking now for adult education, I've seen the most boring WebExes, Zooms, webinars out there, and people are basically not falling. Uh, well, the advantage is now you can fall asleep in your own sofa and not anymore in, in the physical classroom. But that's what I don't um, get. And this is like a mistake that people make all over again. And it's not a new one. I mean, a funny one, like if you would rewind 10 years ago when Second Life, you know, the new virtual world was actually coming up onto us and that would replace the entire universum of things typical that's what the educational technology industry would like to tell to you the, the funny thing is uh, you go into second life 10 years ago and you see exactly the same you don't see the physical school but you see a virtual replica you don't see the physical uh, teacher but you see someone very boring doing presentations powerpoint presentations with no power and no point at the front of the school and actually doing exactly the same and that's what I'm hoping for that maybe in this initial period that they're forced into a new meeting that they're not completely familiar with, that they will realize, shit, this is not what I want to do here. Maybe there's something else that I can do here. And if then at that time when they really will embrace, let's say, the new medium or new technology, come up with some new ways of dealing with it, then we might uh, accelerate. And maybe then we can open up, let's say, uh, a new narrative on maybe more sustainable, more ecological, more other forms of learning, then it would not just be rhetoric. It would be maybe also then contributing to the core pedagogy. Because uh, on that, I haven't seen a lot of examples uh, yet. And this discourse is already a discourse that among educational scientists and people that are at the forefront of technology-enhanced learning, I mean, that's still maybe 10% of the good things that you're seeing uh, right now. And uh, I don't, you know, I don't have to emphasize it because people now get into these kind of webinars from dusk till dawn. They're completely tired, exhausted, even more exhausted than in a usual day because they're not used to this kind of new kind of uh, environment. Yeah, I, I mean, you mentioned what's uh, no power and no point, I guess, in, in, the, in for the point element. I think, I think for a lot of people and society as a whole, perhaps as well, we start to realize that... Um, a lot of the educational system that we uh, grew into um, is still based upon um, a worldview and, and a, an organization of the world that stems from the industrial age in which we, I mean, I mentioned the, the metaphor of the manufacturing line actually before, um, mm -hmm. in which we would actually pipe people through um, this this system that would prepare them for a specific set of jobs that they would uh, fulfill uh, later on. Right now, and you could do that. I mean, you could easily set up this system and improve upon it because the jobs wouldn't change that much. Uh, right now, we're in a, a in a major series of societal shifts in which it's much harder to even predict what tomorrow is going to be like. So let alone the jobs you might fulfill. I mean, there, there are all these studies that, I don't know, 60% of the jobs won't be there in X year's time. So, so there's, there's a whole lot of, um, the point that the teacher should focus on, that educational systems can be organized around, 
it seems like that is continuously shifting now. And that is creating, um, I guess, from where I'm standing outside of the sector, it, it's creating quite a challenge for the people inside it to um, to come up with uh, a model, with contents, with pedagogical skills necessary in order to not just keep people engaged, which is one problem, but also what are we preparing them for? So there seems to be like a real focus now on on the whole uh, we shouldn't just uh, focus on knowledge transfer, but we should focus on growing certain kind of meta skills. So that, mm-hmm. um, which of course can also become a numbing exercise in itself if you're not, um, if, if there's no real content to, to chew on. Um, could it be that what we're asking from the educational system is not just about preparing people for certain jobs, but shaping allowing them to become persons uh, that that shape and contribute to the betterment of, of society as a whole. Now, I'm, I'm turning it perhaps into a very broad discussion, but I think some of that seems to be out there, especially now that we're moving into the, all these discussions of the the Green New European Deal, um, and the so- uh, social innovation, societal impact, all these kind of things require a different kind of approach of all of our systems, including education. From where you stand, is, is it something that you also encounter in the types of trainings that you're uh, asked to, to, uh, to foresee that you're not just training people to fulfill a certain task, but actually shape them in a more, in a more general way or equip them to, uh, to develop and, and into, into a different direction? Yeah. Oh, thanks, Nick. I, I think... I mean, there's a lot of dimensions on on, on, on the questions that you, you tackle here, and I won't dive immediately into the more, let's say, overall, how would I call it, neo-humanistic type of overall uh, purpose here. But like, let's take it back really to, to the ground and to my daily work. You know, I work um, um, in a training context in a development uh, cooperation where I get... Uh, I mean, I travel around uh, the world, did more than 80 countries right now where they ask us to deliver training. And uh, and it's globally, it's something intercultural. So I've been always saying like, look, these kind of workshops. And then when you start to ask like, okay, what do you expect out of it? What is the impact out of it? That in, to use your metaphor, this kind of industrial kind of thing, in a way, I've seen a lot of the whole development aid and cooperation and specifically on capacity building, developing into a kind of uh, workshop factory where they actually invite the experts uh, and they are all, let's say, high level experts on all the different subjects that you could uh, basically imagine. But I'm asking, and they do probably very meaningful uh, things, but putting them together one week with a group of 30 people that would like to know something more about food security, about sustainable development, about uh, procurement, any topic that you would mention, I think that's not the way we're going to create a meaningful impact in their lifetime. And that's the reason why I said it, because these problems, even when you're a procurement expert or you're a sustainable development expert or a water expert, the problems that you're facing is not just your expert problems. They are expert problems that are embedded into very complex challenges that your organization, that your uh, village, that your society is basically changing. And your expert in view is just a small drop onto the kind of larger problem. So we need to move from this kind of industrial 
model where the expert, and that is the, the professor or the teacher or whatever you call him, actually realizes that he's only a very small contribution towards the larger um, circle of knowledge uh, out there and where he starts to engage into a form of what I would call networked uh, learning, where the expertise is just a small fragment into the entire thing, where, where the engagement into a meaningful networked interdisciplinary, uh, let's say, approach would be the way to actually create uh, communication, create meaningful uh, interactions instead of broadcasting, this is what I know and this is what you have to know. And that's where I would say the workshop factory, the industrial model, which still could live in a situation where there was a certainty, where we had a very pre-aligned model of what knowledge uh, was, what competencies were, moving into a very uncertain world, a very volatile world, where we actually upfront do not know how we would have to deal with certain situations. Maybe COVID-19 is a perfect example of that, but what's currently happening, we have all kinds of experts basically saying what they actually think from their own fields. I mean, we listen to the viral uh, expert, we listen to the economical kind of expert, and if you listen to each one of them individually, they all tell very expert, meaningful things, but they are embedded into a, a very complex network of a society that the one single expert view is not going to help us any further. So um, what I would say is that, um, yeah, instead of preparing people, participants, learners, students, children for a world full of certainty, I think where we actually need to move to is like, how can we prepare people for uncertainty? And, and it's these kind of attitudes that might be um, very important for the future. And I mean, we say this is now a kind of a future approach, but I, uh, I remember one, uh, one quote and uh, when is a quote that I always use also in, in my courses. And it's a quote that is probably somewhere from the sixties. It's from Alvin Toffler. He said like the illiterate of the 21st century will not those who cannot read and write, but those who cannot learn, unlearn and relearn. And that's also a little bit in the mode that uh, we are finding uh, ourselves. And that's also how I got to, to, to meet you in this kind of very interdisciplinary complex field of, of, of foresight. At the moment when we would have certainty and foresight, then we probably chose the wrong path. Mm -hmm. You, I think you mentioned in, in Toffler's quote the uh, the unlearning and the relearning part I think is a very fascinating one because uh, that is, it, it's, it seems to be all about um, questioning, becoming aware of one's assumptions and then questioning their, their fundamentals, right? Um, if you would apply that to to learning, I mean, you, you mean, I mean, you've you've touched upon quite a few of them. Uh, we've touched upon the knowledge transfer as the assumption that that's the important part. We've touched upon the uh, uh, okay, uh, I know this, so you should know that as well because that's the way we do things. Uh, kind of approach. An assumption on the other end of the spectrum, perhaps like, oh, um, we just uh, put you in an environment, and based upon your own sense of curiosity, you will figure it out. Uh, as as the other end of the thing, which doesn't seem to work that well either. So, this unlearning element, uh, how is that something that you deal with explicitly? Is it something that you consciously embed in your training programs in the, the kind of things that you do at the center? It's a it's a very difficult one that one because of course I can say I can unlearn and I could you know 
continue my rant on curiosity and, and so on, but uh, we have to go a bit deeper uh, on this. And I must say, um, one, one book that opened up my eyes a little bit on this was Thinking Fast and Slow from... Uh, Daniel Kahneman. But it has to do quite a lot with uh, the assumptions uh, that we have and specifically the, the bias on, on a lot of things. And I realized that the bias that I have uh, on a continuous base because of, let's say, the intercultural global thing that I'm in. I mean, I'm working with all kinds of uh, nationalities, genders, uh, different people thinking differently. And it's not just, let's say, in an intellectual discussion that I, I mean, I can become aware of my own bias, but not naturally I would change it because it's so ingrained in the way I have been thinking and the way I have actually lived up in a relatively Western society, apart from some years abroad and now being 12 years in Italy. But uh, this kind of, and we're now looking, for example, into something that um, could be quite powerful. And maybe the educational industry is now pushing it a bit too much because when we talk about virtual reality, I mean, we've been talking about it the last 30 years and every 10 years it gets a kind of a new hype. But I recently have been exposed to some experiences that I would say they are maybe a little bit mind-shifting or mind-boggling, mind, mind and that would help me to think differently. And what, what I'm talking uh, about is um, not just the immersive experience to be, you know, in a virtual uh, reality, but I'll give you one or two examples of what I've been facing. Uh, we've worked with a young startup in London. It's called Body Swaps. And... Uh, Basically, they, uh, I mean, with a kind of an Oculus Quest device, I'm, I'm sitting in there and I sit in front of a, quite a real person that basically ex explains me her psychological uh, issues. She went through a kind of a trauma. So it's a kind of a simulation training for uh, practitioners and for psychiatrists that they need to move into. But you cannot do it in real because that would be quite unethical. So in a virtual situation, that's perfectly to do so. So basically, I'm there training. I'm doing this kind of simulation. I'm standing in front of that woman or that uh, man. And then when it becomes really confrontational, it's called the body swap. Uh, basically, I've been talking for about 10 minutes to that person on how I would actually address the issue. And then suddenly the body swaps and I actually see myself talking to me, but being in the perspective of that other person. Wow. And this is something that, of course, I cannot do in, in, in real life because I cannot dive into your mind. Of course, with the body swap, I don't dive into another mind, but I see already a first reflection on how I talk, how I think, and really directly confronted uh, with myself. And this is something that I cannot do in real life. And that's where I would say with the educational technology that is evolving, we will get into very much mm, stronger things in that. And of course... I'm not looking at the educational sector. I'm looking at other sectors. I'm looking at the architects. I'm looking especially at the artists. The body swaps was actually a kind of an experiment that I have seen on some artists that actually allowed you to take over when you are into the uh, Oculus Quest device into the body of another gender. Um, so imagine you're in the body of another gender and then you experience some stuff that you never could have experienced without, you know, just a training on sexual harassment. What I'm doing now in, in the end could give you a completely immersive twist on what you could have never imagined to do it before. And I'm not talking now just a kind of promotional pitch for virtual reality, but it's just perspective taking 
in a way that is really able to change your perspective, to, to change your bias in a more confrontational way, not just in the intellectual way, but also in the emotional way, also in the way you would experience things. And that's where I think, yeah, maybe we can do some stuff that we previously could not do yet. And there are a lot of things bubbling up in that kind of... Uh, yeah. it, def it definitely makes the whole learning experience more visceral, I would say. Yeah, um, yeah. Which it brings me also to, the, to this uh, kind of like, I mean... You mentioned the the function of the of the body and embodiment in in, in learning. Um, it seems to be something that we've stamped out of the the way that we're at least the educational system to a to a large extent. Um, uh, perhaps it's also one of the reasons why, for example, in in some uh, areas such as design education, but also others, um, there's kind of like a, a renaissance of the master apprenticeship model in which um, the one-on-one -on -one becomes like uh, not just a, a vehicle um, or, um, or a conduit for, for knowledge transfer, but also brings back that, that immersiveness of the whole learning experience uh, in context with one person that kind of like um, makes the bubble in which you're learning secure and safe for you, but also allows a much more direct uh, steering of the, of the learning experience. Is, is that something that you've experimented with as well at the center? Or is it something that you say, well, uh, when, as you mentioned, the challenges are mo most of the times they're to, towards large groups or large settings which makes it difficult to do that but these kinds of technologies could could bring that back to a certain extent as well yeah no and i think they can be quite transformational not, not only the technologies it's more like the approaches because one of the issues that we have uh, an immediate tendency to concentrate on on the technologies i mean they're just a detail they just you know accelerate what we would like to do and we need to be more creative in what kind of models i mean You mentioned it, the one-to-one. -one, uh, that's maybe a model that we would go back into uh, uh, the oldest universities, back to Oxford. That was exactly the one-to-one -one model that they had there, you know, with uh, the professor uh, guiding the kind of uh, uh, element. Mm -hmm. Now, yeah. what I like towards, let's say, whole educational history and all the transformations that are going on, that we're not talking about one-to-one, uh, one-to-many, many-to-many. There are a lot of different parameters and variables uh, out there where we can experiment. And unfortunately, our whole educational institutions, they stick to the one-to kind of many uh, approach, maybe a little bit combined with some smaller group works, but they don't, you know, address the whole creativity of what you could do with all these kind of different formats uh, out there, um, applying also technology on there. So that's why I'm quite curious and in, in to see that, okay, now we have this whole technological wave in COVID-19, but they only choose one particular model. Maybe also if you look at it, this is the only model. And I think we just should think a little bit out of the box and we would come up with new formats for learning. We could talk about crowd learning. We could talk about uh, rhizomatic learning. We could talk about uh, network learning. We could talk about a whole different and not just to use fancy technological or methodological terms, but uh, there's much more that we can do. And then what you would say, the one-to-one, one-to-many, one to, one, one to, one to all, would get different formats, different shapes, different uh, 
things. I'm still amazed every day. I mean, we're having now a one-to-one, -one, but we also could extrapolate it to all different kinds of uh, elements. Absolutely. Um, you mentioned it before, Tom. You're, you're in a kind of, and that's also one of the reasons why I, uh, I, I really wanted to, to have this uh, chat with you, is you're in a kind of uh, privileged position that you see kind of, you have an overview of um, a global state of affairs when it comes to, to learning, to training, to edu education. Um, where do you see in your context with all these different cultures, these different countries, different systems as well, Where do you see the pockets of inspiration for um, a positive change in the educational landscape worldwide? Well, a lot of inspirational elements, uh, actually, I see now actually happening. And actually, it goes back to the same thing. They don't have anything to do with, uh, with technologies. Uh, like, like what we're now doing, this kind of educational podcast together, uh, having a conversation. Um, now that the whole educational industry wants to, you know, book all kinds of digital solutions across the whole world. It's all very different. I mean, I just uh, had a discussion yesterday with some groups in West Africa where they wanted to basically the whole old concept from community radios, which has been very effective in development aid, also uh, to go against the whole Ebola crisis and, and other things. This was, let's say, the educational tool that were embedded into communities with influential uh, persons, but not with the technology that we were used to have, I mean, here uh, in our countries. Now, what do we see? Connectivity is uh, arriving. They leapfrogged on some things. They immediately went to the smartphone. They skipped the computer. Um, so there I see inspiration elements, like imagine the tools that they use, give them a few things, uh, a squad quest, elements combined with the WhatsApp community and combined with another thing. And they can actually do things that 10 years ago were completely impossible because the infrastructure, the production means were way too expensive, but they're now accessible. And there, I think we're going to see creativity, which is going to go much more in a leapfrogging mode just because of the, the scale, the scale. That's also, I mean, I'm very fortunate that I've been born in, in Belgium and I'm still, this is my, host country and I also love the fact that I live in Italy but I've never been confronted with scale in my life I mean I worked in in Nigeria and then I hear millions of people so I'm just thinking millions of collective intelligence uh, out there doing things with the same means and the same production just stepping into crowdsourced mechanism they might re reach things that could not be possible with let's say the five million community that we have here And this is uh, something that follows me, you know, the, the scaling, mm -hmm. um, not always. I mean, this is just, uh, it's a reflection that I make and I don't know how to go about it. It doesn't need to be massive and big in order to be successful. That I'm not saying, but you tap into much more serendipity, much more crowdsourced and expectations, much more things that you would not have than into a more closed uh, kind of uh, community. So, um This is where my inspirational um, elements uh, come from. They could be high-tech, they could be low-tech, uh, it could come from, uh, from everywhere. Could, could, you, could you give us an example of, of, of things that you encountered where you say, wow, this is something we could really uh, learn from? I mean, um, there seems to be a, a that, I mean, there's definitely been a globalization of educational systems, huh? Uh, from the uh, kind of like a, a Eurocentric approach, I would say. Um, but there's plenty of learning power um, in 
insights, uh, different types of approaches um, in everything from indigenous cultures to to, to non-Western approaches to, um, to to solving problems, to uh, to transferring knowledge, to uh, educate uh, young people or next generations, etc. Um, could you share with us some examples of things that you encountered in your uh, context with other cultures that you said, wow, this is something that we could really, that we perhaps have forgotten. We, we might have had it before, but we've forgotten about it or it's something that we should pay more attention to. Yeah. Maybe we'll have to relate with the unlearn kind of element. Uh, before I joined the UN here in uh, in Italy, uh, I had the, the chance to uh, go to do a first project in, in Uganda. And there, of course, you know, you come there, you think, you know, you have your background in educational sciences, you, you know, you see what the problems is and you're going to provide them solutions, you know. And my big first confrontation is like, just get away from all the solutions, you know, because you don't understand the problem and the challenge uh, deep enough. And that was for me a kind of, uh, you know, like, yeah, existential awakening, I must say, because all the solutions and still up until today, we actually make these kind of solutions almost religious, you know, they have in Uganda a malaria problem. So let's send them all kinds of uh, mosquito nets and then, uh, you know, do the whole, the warmest week around, you know, sending mosquito nets uh, towards uh, Uganda. While I was in Uganda, the, 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 of course, mosquito nets are extremely important. I'm not going to say that. I'm not a scientist into that. But if you just would implement your solution without taking the context into account, it would happen to the three things that I've seen. I've seen mosquito nets used as football nets. I've seen mosquito nets used as... Uh, uh, wedding uh, dresses, uh, and uh, of course, I was surprised to see there was a little bit of a humoristic kind of kind of thing. But then seeing like, look, it's not just about implementing a technical solution because a mosquito net, from the expert point of view, could be the most meaningful, sensible thing in order to do, like a mouth mask or whatever you know. But if you just do it without the context, without how a society functions, without how the behaviors are actually acting, then maybe you just need to go back to uh, ground zero. And there, to go back to ground zero, for me, um, one of the books that inspired me, um, it was a book from Stephen Johnson. He said, where good ideas come from. He, he focuses on the um, acceptation uh, thing, which is a too technical to term, but to say like, look, when you face a problem, maybe just step back and move into a completely other discipline to get some insights and then just apply it on um, what you would find uh, meaningful. That's not the exact definition of acceptation. But what I want to say, for example, when Gutenberg, the, the inventor of the uh, the books uh, out there, he was living in an area which was full of wine. And actually a lot of the insights that he implemented into the wine press came from, uh, in the book press came from the wine press in, in one way or another. And these kind of stories remind me, me having a very specific expert background, maybe if I would focus only on my expert background, I would just running around in my own circles of knowledge that I already know, in my own bias, in my own kind of, okay, I can immediately find a quick fist for this, but not knowing if that really will work. And that kind of acceptation type of movement of getting into a conversation with any expertise field, uh, even uh, what I learned through design thinking was just more connecting towards, you know, 
what's happening really on the ground and not what is happening into the safe academical discipline of my uh, few researchers out there. That could give me uh, awakening call. And then specifically referring to indigenous uh, cultures or something, that's where I see like, um, it's funny to see that now design thinking is the most sexy movement now happening in, in the Western movement. It goes back to a very old anthropological techniques of trying to grasp the things into its full complexity. And it's not just by putting some post-its yeah. on, on the wall. No, it's a little bit more deeper than that. And that's why I said I'm, I'm very privileged to work in the field of learning innovation because for me it's not only about learning, it's about bringing these different disciplines from design thinking to foresight to complexity thinking all together into one inspirational, let's say, context of which you are, which you can work in. Yeah, I, th I think there's. Um, it seems to be like like a challenge as well, right? That that even though we're in this vortex of 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 global of globalization in a globalized world, um, it's almost a challenge not to lose the 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 diversity and the the wealth that that uh, provides us with. Um, so these different, I would say, almost cultures of learning um, might harbor also the solutions that we might need in the future or the approaches that might lead us to solutions for certain problems that we encounter. So we have to be careful not to stamp out these different approaches just from out of, well, I, I could say even cultural ignorance uh, to, a certain, to a certain extent or imperialistic drives or whatever it is. Um, there seems to be like a reawakening. Uh, I mean, you mentioned uh, the design world as a source of inspiration. Uh, there's a, a large debate going on about decolonizing design to, to create space, to create room also for these different approaches to, uh, to knowledge building, to creating solutions, to understanding problems. Is that also a challenge for you? In, in your line of work that you say, for example, when working with teams in Africa or working with teams in Latin America or, uh, or Asia, that you say, well, instead of coming with our solutions, instead of coming with our approaches, um, let's try and figure out also what the kind of natural approach or um, on their end would be and how could we take it from there? Or how could that inspire us to co-creatively come up with something that um, that might uh, tend towards a solution. Yeah, and I mean, that approach uh, would be, of course, the, the, the ideal approach, but the whole system and context uh, around it, specifically in development cooperation, I, I found that is like, uh, that they expect solutions, you know, and they, uh, and then uh, these days we're going to work with design thinking approaches. Uh, a few years ago it was with uh, complexity adaptive thinking approaches. I mean, the approaches, they change, or at least the narrative uh, of what, uh, you know, then the whole consultancy Bible is around that might change. But what I found, and, and for me, I'm, it's not a critic because I'm actually also very inspired by some of these uh, approaches. But what is missing out there, according to me, is the... The fact that uh, the first encounter should be based upon nothing and just uh, listening to each other. I always mentioned um, mm -hmm. the most important function that I would like to create in my organization would be the CLO, the chief listening officer, just as a kind of a, 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 an entry point, but also as a kind of a methodological approach. And do we have the luxury 
in uh, let's say the whole efficiency paradigm to just you know uh, when I want to do a project I would like to build in a phase of two months or three months of just uh, listening and that would have been I don't know at this time maybe not always accepted with my donors because they immediately want to have an analytical framework that already indicates on what kind of solutions will work against which indicators will actually uh, be good and this is something that I said by listening or by observing, and it's not to go into the kind of academical uh, analysis paralysis. It's not just to make sure, do I understand my counterpart if on what, like what kind, can we align our language in one way or another before we start to talk, before we start to converse. And there I would like to see a bit more methodological uh, frameworks. I know like in, in design thinking, I think they have, there are excellent tools from uh, simple empathy maps to the other things. But I think it needs a little bit a more a deep dive, uh, a deep dive into that to become fully uh, meaningful uh, in that way. And then that's what I said, like uh, maybe my next career move will be to the chief listening officer, but I haven't seen any organization with a vacancy on, on that one yet. <laughs> Yeah, I think that it's it's a very powerful uh, term. It, it uh, I mean, if you start unpacking it, like like you mentioned, you you touch upon a lot of different dimensions. Uh, you're actually the, I mean, you're only the, our second guest, but also the second person who mentions, who or who questions the whole efficiency um, drive or or um, impetus that we uh, that we seem to be uh, seem to be in. Um, uh, there's quite a, perhaps it's COVID nineteen as well that's forcing people to slow down, take a step back, and 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 question perhaps some of the things that they've uh, been doing. But listening, indeed, I think it I think it's part of mapping the the terrain or or the territory as well, right? So uh, as as you mentioned, it's uh, it's the first step towards reformulating or reassessing what has been in front of you as a as a, as a problem to see whether that is. Uh, is that actually the problem? You start to question uh, the question that's been uh, put in front of you. I think that's one of the things that we run into also in our studio as uh, in the majority of projects that we work on, it's it's the first step that we try to reformulate what has been assigned to us as a, as a challenge by the, by the client, only for them to realize a bit further down the road that the challenge is actually a different one. Um, so I think, yeah, I think there's there's a lot of it. It resonates with a lot of people at this uh, this moment. Um, where would you see the um, the greatest need and 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 potential for for innovation when it comes to to learning? I mean, if you if you look around at these rankings that are published of quote unquote industries ripe for disruption, uh, you immediately run into healthcare and education, and it's not just the U.S. Is in plenty of uh, places that they say those are the two, at least two of, of the many that are really right for disruption. And something needs to budge, something needs to change there if we want to make it uh, towards a new level of uh, of society and of, of, uh, of perhaps even the societal consciousness, you could mean it, or societal intelligence. What are the greatest needs and potentials for innovation when it comes to learning, according to you? Yeah, like they often come to us like as, as being learning specialist and saying like, you know, like what is uh, going to happen next or where do we need to uh, in, invest? And I must say I was working uh, with the ILO last year. It was their 100th centenary uh, 
yeah, 100 years as the organization already. And they were reflecting a little bit on, on the future of work, you know. And uh, of course, if you would see all the discussions, all the think tanks, all the consultancies, all the different stakeholders having opinions about where the future of work is, is heading. What I've seen in this kind of uh, discussion, this high degree of technological determinism, because the the future would be full of uh, uh, artificial intelligence, uh, would be a complete virtual and augmented uh, reality, would be uh, infused by big data. You mean all the different trends that are basically uh, out there. And uh, then I was saying like, look, well, then if this technological determinants of this, if this would be really a uh, reality, then why uh, the future skills would not be um, coding or would not be uh, programming or would not be in these things every year on the same level. I mean, I haven't seen a lot of change in that one, but uh, my, my top three is always, I mean, the, the quote that I refer to the capability to learn, to learn, you know, whatever, that is because what I'm currently learning uh, right now, what I've learned in the last 20 years, I never actually learned in, in, in the university or actually in my whole schooling period because that's the only way to adaptive myself as a species uh, towards like what is currently happening in my uh, environment. The second one is like uh, on the innovation. That's why I really focus on and innovation. It's not only the capacity to think analytically in, in, in a specific uh, discipline, but it's really tapping into these kind of new interdisciplinary movements that come up, like, like foresight, like behavioral insights, like design thinking. Maybe I uh, was not fortunate enough when I studied in, in, in Leuven to be confronted in a deep level to them because these were all, let's say, sciences that were growing uh, at that time or were more specific uh, approaches. But that's where I also see a lot of new things actually are coming up. And then the last one is basically um, yeah, on uh, creativity, on uh, you know, learning to do things uh, differently. That's maybe why I wanted to go into the cultural sector and, and organize festivals, but never ended up into it, but try to get that back into the field of learning. And I mean, these are just a few ingredients uh, that are on my plate on a, on a daily uh, base. And that's where I think the only ways that you could prepare people for a world where uncertainty, where volatility will be uh, the new normal. Uh, I mean, and we have been uh, faced with that. Uh, well, we are now currently in a phase where that is quite, quite, quite clear. I mean, I see it in my own uh, organization. It's a training center which uh, fifteen thousand people on a yearly basis would come, fly in from all over the world to do a kind of training, and now the whole model is actually completely disrupted. So, how do you react upon that? Are you going to say, "Am I going to postpone my courses until I can fly again"? Um, don't think that's a good uh, thing because we don't know what is going to happen. So prepare yourself for different scenarios. And there I tap into foresight. I tap into design thinking. I tap into how can we change in a very fast, agile way to new circumstances. And I think that's the only, let's say, if I look to the future of learning, a very um, handy tool to just survive. And not only survival of the fittest, but survival for, for everyone. I think I think that's... Uh... That's a beautiful uh, bridge to to some another topic that I, we've touched upon before, but perhaps we could dive a little bit deeper into it. Is the whole notion of this this lifelong learning? I mean, you've mentioned it um, as some of the stuff you didn't learn at the age in which you were um, being trained or being educated. 
but you learned them later on. Uh, there seems to be um, kind of like a, I mean, we've been hearing about uh, hearing about uh, lifelong learning for uh, decades now, um, and uh, often still it's about okay. So first you get your education, and then since society is moving as fast as it is, you're going to have to catch up after a while. So you're going to have to go through it again and again and again. So. Uh, which is um, not doing away with the model that we spent the first third or quarter of our lives studying. And then we make the shift to working lives or real life or as if it didn't exist before. And um, and then it starts all over again. Did you come across notions or, or how do you deal with it within your own organization of, of this lifelong learning conundrum as, as being... Um, able to to translate into something something new a different type of of education of learning experience that uh time-wise and in terms of method goals whatever is different from that that general perception yeah no I, it's a mantra this whole lifelong learning thing i actually tired of the whole world of lifelong learning learning until you die basically so um as if you didn't do it before right <laughs> yeah 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 no, no. Um, I think it, this is a, a request or a call to all these uh, institutions, big development banks that, you know, cultivate the whole lifelong learning paradigm. And I mean, they do it with uh, an excellent intention that I'm not going to say. But um, yeah, what does it mean in practice inst in, instead of uh, like being a kind of an empty uh, rhetoric? In my work, uh, I would say I, I like to see it very practical i mean uh, as you said when you went to school or when you went to university you had your teacher your professor your mentor uh, in front of you but now with this whole technology accelerated uh, age with this kind of globally network age i don't know whether there will be a stop now on globalization but the fact that if you think consciously almost every 10 minutes there's a potential teacher in front of you uh, from the YouTube tutorial that I had to actually check because something broke into my house towards, let's say, the, the social network of connections that I have to also tap into a, a problem that I'm basically facing. So if I would divide my 24 hours and see where all these entry points for the mega flag of lifelong learning would be, I could translate it very concretely. You know, like uh, I asked my colleagues that work for me, I have a team of 20 people, the first present that I gave to them is like this year, no to-do list, only to learn lists. And uh, I send like a big postcard to the organization. Here is what you have to fill in. What is your to learn list? What are the things, things you would like to basically learn? And when people come to me and say like, look, yeah, I want to learn this. Can you sign up for a course? I said, no. How are you going to learn this by all the different options that are out here nowadays in front of you? And I'm not saying not only in terms of connectivity, network, internet, but in context of people around you, in context of uh, what all the resources that are surrounded. And I think there's a little bit of uh, over being exposed. And uh, maybe people need to have, uh, again, the right curational capacity to select what is relevant for them to learn the things that they would like to uh, learn. Because that, in times of information overload, in times of tool overload, in times of uh, limited infotention spams, like they, they, they call it, it might be also, again, apart from learning to learn, also 
learning to cope, learning to curate and your own learning path. That might be also an interesting uh, entry point to give a new meaning to lifelong uh, learning. We, we definitely need to give that a new label because it's, it's extremely boring as a kind of a label and we have heard it for the last 30 years mm -hmm. and uh, I think we need to find something yeah. different for that. I, th I think what's interesting and in what you just uh, mentioned is that you implicitly show uh, a shift in the, the agency of, uh, and I think it's, it's almost implicit in the terms education or teaching and, and learning. When you say, okay, we f need to find the curational capacity uh, to deal with what it is that I want to learn at which pace and, and when, etc., you leave it up to the learner. Uh, to decide uh, upon that. And it's not um, the company or the organization demands that you up your levels, that you up your skills at a certain point, and so they propose you a course, which is something very different, right? Working for the International Labour Organization, I can imagine that you run into all kinds of different models of organizations. Do you see organizational models that are better equipped or better fit to harness or to make the most out of, to leverage this shift of agency towards the individual that say, okay, we're going to leave it up to you uh, to learn or to decide what and when and how uh, instead of pushing courses towards you? Is that, uh, is that something that you see? Um, well, it's an interesting uh, question because, I mean, of course we are connected with the, uh, International Labour Organization, we are the International Training Centre, and as a training centre, you're a learning centre, so you have a bit more independence of, you know, creating different models on, because it's a learning space, so and if in a learning space you're not allowed to think what you want to think, then it's not a learning space anymore. What we see in bigger organisations, that there are also other components, there are political components, there are hierarchical components, there are... Uh, strategic uh, kind of components and to create a kind of uh, freedom I would say also to to innovate to think differently I think we will need to create these kind of uh, safe spaces uh, we have this discussion ongoing now with, with, the, with the international labor organization that our training center should be this kind of safe space where you can think out of the box where these kind of one-to-one, -one, uh, let's say, learning moments are, are possible independently of all the other complexities that you would face in your daily works, whether it's political, whether it's uh, another thing. And uh, I've seen across the UN a similar movement. I mean, the kind of innovation labs facilities that are mounting up should actually create that space to allow for a little bit of disruptiveness. And of course, in big uh, international organizations, you won't have disruptiveness as you would have in a small startup company, but at least to allow a kind of continuum, you know, from maybe where incremental innovation is already happening, maybe a little bit more. And, you know, maybe at least if it would go lead to 10% of disruptiveness into these big organizations, that would be already an interesting thing. And not because of the sake of being disruptive, it's just because the surrounding climate in which they are functioning is extremely disruptive. So if they're not going to have a disruptive answer to this, that might uh, also make them into a much more difficult position to address the societal challenges that they are mandated for. Absolutely. It, it, it makes me think also of, of, the, of a recurring topic, perhaps, in this whole context, which is you see a lot of people 
engaging in learning activities uh, to become better at something they're either already good at or um, to become more specialized in a certain theme. Whereas you also hear voices that say specialism is definitely important. Um, but right now we've based so many career paths within organizations upon specialization that we're actually starting to lack the generalists that can uh, recombine things and bring them back together in order to to understand it. And we see it also now in this, this COVID-19 crisis that one of the big challenges is how do we channel uh, the information? How do we make sense of uh, information coming from diverse fields? Who are the people? Who are the people skilled at bringing all these insights back together so that we can, um, can decide upon how we want to act upon it? So it's almost like the philosopher and um, Alfred North Whitehead used to mention and said, okay, you can, you can drill down to the atomic level, but at a certain point, you're going to have to go back up. So you're going to need the generalists uh, to, uh, to, uh, to move beyond your, your specialist area. How do you look upon that um, learning versus the direction of learning versus specialization versus... Um, generalization is perhaps not the right word, but also perhaps empathy towards other fields so that you can connect with other fields. Yeah, I, I think this whole uh, whole discussion is, uh, I mean, like it's coming back a lot of the times and, and I think we, we conduct this discussion too binary in, in one way. It's either a specialist or a generalist or in this way. And of course, we had all this kind of specialist moments into our career and also general moments. I mean, of course, uh, when you go into an academical study, you specialize because uh, uh, that's what you're expected uh, to do. But there, I think what we need is different models to get these kind of two competencies uh, uh, together where we see new forms. And what definitely is not going to work anymore is uh, when we seek it at the individual level. We see actually all these different people coming together into kind of cross-disciplinary hybrid kind of groups and apart from being a generalist or a specialist, or if you still can position yourself that way, because if I ask myself, am I special? Yeah, I'm specialized in some things. Am I generalist? Yeah, I'm. I'm so it's a little bit more gray. Yeah, the T-shaped profile, as they say. Yeah, it's a little bit more gray in that game. But how can you create these kind of hubs of think? And then again, the interesting accelerated by technology, because that didn't happen uh, before. And I think uh, I'm always inspired, like when I see people. Um, even in 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 Vlaanderen, in, in, in our Flemish part, like I, I've seen people like uh, Angelo Vermeulen, you know, like uh, being I don't know what background he has, but I think more engineer, bioengineer, mm -hmm. doing artist is now specialized into space. Is he a specialist? Is he a, he's extremely specialist in some of the kind of elements because of his also communication aspect in his persuasion aspect he's bringing a lot of different dimensions together that is going to have an influence on society which is way better than when we would listen to a, a space engineer or a bio engineer or a thing and that kind of interdisciplinary acceleration combined with both generalist and specialist skills is going to be a kind of a future hub you know listening to into uh, one of our dear friends uh, louis vermeers also i mean originally a car uh, designer very specialized and i mean top-notch top world-class in, in in car designer but if you go in deeper conversations with him it goes much more it's really a very hybrid 
personality on the edge of uh, design, art, philosophy, on actually future visions of how mobility would uh, drive into. So this whole binary thinking on general specialist, if you see these kind of examples of persons that actually uh, we know, it gives a completely different twist to this kind of uh, discussion. Speaking of the the hybrid profile, um, Tom, as we're coming to uh, to the end of our, our conversation, um, and to come full circle with how we started our, our conversation, I would say you've also embarked on another kind of learning journey, right, or, or t- educational journey, that of uh, educating the world in Italy about Belgian beer. Is this how did that come about? And and tell us a little bit more about that project. Well, yeah, been now. When did we start? It's five years ago that that project got started. And being now uh, in Italy for for, for 12 years, I mean, fantastic uh, country. I'm I'm here and I'm staying here. And uh, of course, I mean, everybody loves uh, Italy. And I love especially, let's say, the quality of life uh, here. If, of course, you have the privilege to have a job and, and, and so on. Uh, but then I met up with two fellow uh, Belgians and I said, if there's something from Belgium that you you miss, and of course that went directly towards the, the cliché, the Belgian beer, because if we talked about quality and also um, that aspect came actually uh, back. So I'm not a beer specialist, but my two other colleagues, uh, they were, and they introduced me to the world of uh, Belgian beer. And I must say, I didn't know anything. Well, of course, I like drinking beers, but in the five years that I'm now in Italy, I discovered uh, all the beers um, from Belgium, but not only in terms of just having a beer, but also there, the kind of stories that you see of people passionate, uh, busy with a kind of an almost, you know, artisanal uh, experience, completely also experienced into uh, sciences like chemics, like brewing, like other kind of things, combining it with entrepreneurial skills to actually survive on a very local level because there's an overcompetition uh, out there, but always geared towards, let's say, the quality uh, product, which actually gives an added value to your kind of life. So basically, this whole philosophical twist was just an excuse for us to have beers here in uh, in, in Turin, but at least Belgian beers are not now known in Italy. I think uh, over 40 brewers came already to present their beers here, and it was a kind of a nice... Uh, exchange it does not need to be always the uh, italian wine we can combine them and then introducing something completely new for italians because beer for them was uh, relatively uh, unknown now you see also this kind of same kind of passion uh, towards it but as i said it was one of the the kind of experiments that i like to uh, engage in, not that I have uh, an ambition to become uh, a brewer, but listening to a completely different field of uh, expertise and try to learn from them on how they basically, yeah, shape their uh, profession, their passion, and uh, their reason of being on this uh, small uh, globe. Yeah, I, th- I think you've mentioned the, one of the key words to our conversation. I think the passion is is what binds it all, right? It's the, it's the learning parts, the uh, thirsty to learn and thirsty for the for the belgian beer i think that's uh that's kind of like the the red thread running through our, our conversation thank you so much tom for uh for joining us on the on the podcast thanks a lot nick and uh it was lovely to have you here yeah. and i hope we can continue this conversation same same to me i'm going to have a beer right now
This was Perflections. You can find me on Twitter at Pantopinik, P-A-N-T-O-P-I-N-I-K, and our Foresight and Design Studio at Pantopicon.be, P-A-N-T-O-P-I-C-O-N-B-E, without dots. <laughs>